Welcome to the Well Workplaces podcast, where we have authentic conversations with health and wellbeing leaders that are on a mission to inspire healthy change in the workplace. I'm your host, Tom Bosner, and today's episode is proudly brought to you by Pinnacle Health Group, Australia's leading corporate wellness provider who are on a mission to deliver 5 million health experiences globally. And today I'm joined by special guest, Marnie Jones. A little bit about Marnie before we get into the show. Uh, Marnie is the director of Talent X which is a hybrid of recruitment and consultancy agency that is a top up and bottom down approach to building overachieving teams. Marty's had an interesting career to date and she started her career when she was 19 years old. Uh, For 10 years, she worked as a management consultant helping companies small and large from 200,000 to $130 million in turnover get the most out of their businesses. And at 23, she was the head consultant for a small boutique firm in Sydney where she managed a team of consultants. Marnie believes that there are three key things that are the most important things to developing high-performance teams. Hiring reliable and overachieving employees, designing and organizing teams and its workflow, and more importantly, leveraging and retaining the staff through great management. And that's what we'll be talking a lot about today. Marnie, welcome to the show. Wow, what an intro. Thanks, Tom. (laughs) Yeah, well... That's a big intro because you've had an interesting, uh, you know, quite a quite an interesting journey um, starting work, I guess, in this space at a very, you know, I, I would say, well, compared to me, it's quite an early stage of your career. So you've achieved a lot. So um, well done on that. And I'm really keen today to talk about your background, your journey with your business, obviously, but also just talking today, we'll probably get into talking about the seven archetypes of of managers and leaders and really trying to unpack that because there's a lot going on in the in the hiring uh recruiting space right now and obviously there's a lot of conversation around not only recruiting people but retaining good talent in in businesses so maybe the best place to start money is just to perhaps tell us a little bit about your early career journey at the age of 19 getting into obviously management consulting how the hell did you do that? And uh, yeah, tell us. <laughs> well, I, I was very lucky. I landed a traineeship in a very small boutique consultancy firm in Sydney. It was a friend of my mom's, a very uh, kind of associate friend. And my mom asked me, um, what do you want to do, my love? And I was like, I, don't, I think I want to do something in business. And so she got me set up with this interview with a man called Daniel Davis and a woman named Lindy McNunker. And they had a consulting firm in Leichhardt in Sydney. They just really liked me. And they said, all right, we'll give you a grow. And I started out, you know, doing dishes and prepping for clients. And then I got given my first client after about six months of teaching. They taught a curriculum. So that's what actually allowed me. A lot of people ask me, how did you get to do that? A lot of uh, management consultancies based off their experience running companies, this specific consultancy was a specific curriculum that applied to any industry. So I had to learn the curriculum, learn how to apply and make it relative to each business. And I got my first client when I was 19. And then I just worked my way out basically. So even though, you know, I did start, I didn't have a life for eight years, didn't have a partner, you know, started at 7am, worked till 10pm most days. So it was one of those crazy careers, a whirlwind. And I think I compacted about 20 years of experience and it's been, you know, five years just because I had access to so many business owners and I got to learn through them effectively. Yeah. Wow. That's amazing. That's pretty cool. What a good story. And, and, you know, often the best thing to do when early career is just sort of sink your teeth into something, but you definitely need to start with a, an opportunity. And it sounded like you just were able to work your way into it, obviously. 
Yeah, I, I've often, I'm a big believer that everyone has a time in their career where they really should work, you know, harder than anyone else. And they really should put in everything that they can. And I think, um, also I was actually the only person in the company to get two warning letters. I was on my verge of getting my third warning letter just because I just kept, honestly, I kept arriving late. This is when I was 19. So it did, I had to grow up very fast and I, luckily they were really great mentors and luckily the clients liked me. So I was great with clients, but my own internal, I had to, you know, learn the hard way very quickly. And it was such a high performing environment. It was like, you know, money, you've got to decide who you want to be. You've got to decide what type of life you want. And you have, you have to decide now, because if you do this again, you know, we can't work with you. And I was like, I remember going home, like, oh my gosh, what am I going to do? And I was like, no, nah, if I leave like this, this is, this is going to ruin my life. So yeah, I had to learn very fast and very quick. But I also learned that, you know, age isn't always a factor that equates to the amount of experience. I've worked with companies that have been driven into the ground by people who have been experienced for 20 years. So it doesn't always, not always proportional. I think it does help, but I also can say that I did circumvent a lot of what other people would have had to go through to learn what I learned. And I was very lucky. I got access to a whole bunch of business owners in Sydney and I built a really big network that I think I took for granted for quite some time. And I think now I'm really realizing how hard it is to build such an amazing network. And so I've been very fortunate that way as well. Yeah, that's great. And I like what you said around, you know, through your career there, there's moments where it's okay to go a little bit harder because your career is obviously a, you know, it's a long period and it kind of ebbs and flows. It sounds like you obviously, you know, besides your couple of naughty letters, um, almost getting, <laughs> almost getting ousted, but you, um, be obviously pushed, pushed through and you're able to kind of use it. You're probably, you're used to your advantage, perhaps, you know, compared Absolutely. to maybe, maybe where you, you know, potentially where your energies level levels are at right now compared to when you were 19. And commitments as well, you know, and the, your free time and commitments. Absolutely. But yeah, I ended up on finishing with that company and that company dissolved because they wanted to go into a different direction. So they actually closed that company and started a different company under a different curriculum. And I took that as an opportunity to have my late twenties. So then I traveled for a little bit and, and, and then I was, I actually missed consulting so much. I ended up consulting on evenings and weekends in my house in St. Kilda. I lived in Melbourne and I was like, okay, this is a sign I need to get back into consulting. So then I started started out in consulting and had done some recruitment and thought I would open a recruitment arm and that just kind of grew from there. And we've seen some amazing um, results with our process and our clients are very happy with that. So it's just kind of grown. So I now have two, basically two branches in TalentX and that's kind of how TalentX came about. That's the short of it. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's, that's really cool. So TalentX, I'm just, I guess, going back to my big intro at the start. So the it's a hybrid of recruitment and consulting. So that just means, I guess, you're doing the recruitment arm and the consulting arm. Is that right? Yeah. What you said before was perfect about basically the hiring, the organizing and the management of staff. So we have a team that does the hiring and then we have a separate team that specializes in how to organize and structure teams. So you can grow without hitting ceiling. You can grow without everything falling on your plate. And then the management side, which is really upgrading managers. Cause you know, I think it's like 70 69% of, no, 79% of managers in Australia don't receive any management training. So I have a, we do management training as well, which is where the seven manager archetypes come from based on, I've worked with hundreds of companies, thousands of staff, and I've realized that I've, I've uh, created these seven archetypes and every manager must be good at these seven things. And that's kind of the consulting part of TalentX. Yeah. 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 I'm excited to get into these archetypes because I reckon I've either been 
one, you know, a few of these sites <laughs> in my, in my, uh, former management life and, and probably also been on the end of, uh, that as well in, a, in my early career. Yeah. So before we get into that though, it'd be great to just talk about the current climate in recruitment. Now, obviously we are, you know, the climate is post pandemic. There's in, from what I've read, there's a lot of hiring or attempting, attempted hiring going on and not as many applicants. Is that, is that right? What's the, what's the state oh, man, at the moment? It's like- it is the worst that I've ever seen it. To give you an idea, I was talking to a business owner yesterday and a year and a half ago, she would post an ad for a role in her company that would get 150 applicants. She's getting five or 10. So it is extremely challenging, especially because with our hiring process, we figured out that only 0.5 to 3% of candidates make it through our screening. So therefore the number of applicants in our process does equate to the likelihood of filling the role. So because they're so low, of course, owners are being pushed to either go to recruiters and then recruiters don't, a lot of recruiters don't use ads. They use their current databases or they poach through LinkedIn, which means then you have, yeah, a very challenging recruitment cycle. So you have these very low application rates, which means you're forced to use recruiters, which means recruiters are constantly poaching and they have these obscene offers, which means people don't need to apply for jobs as much, which means it's a very low application rate. So this is a very challenging recruitment cycle that a lot of business owners are seeing at the moment. You know, I've even had candidates that we're hiring for, you know, we speak to candidates every day and, and you get candidates who might get 10 to 50 messages in one case, the client candidate said they get about 50 messages a week on wow. LinkedIn. So it's a very challenging scene at the moment, but you know, there is, it's very, it's very awful to hear that. And it's very dampening as a business owner. So. There is good news though, and the good news is that we still fill, we have only about maybe 20 projects that we do at any one time. So we're not a huge recruiter, but that's, you know, at any one time, that's still, we, we are understanding how the market's going and we fill 89%, sorry, 98% of our jobs uh, using ads still. We don't do poaching. We do some very soft poaching. If you're unhappy, we don't hard poach. We don't use money to, to, to tempt people. But I also would say that because of that, how we're able to do that is through our ad writing. So what I'm trying to say is the good news is that you can still fill ads, but you've just got to take a different approach and a different strategy. So we, the way we write ads is, is completely different. And I'll just show you our stats from the last, let me just pull it up for you. Mm. I'll show you the stats from the last six months, just to show, even though that we've got such a challenging environment, here we go, we still find quite quite a lot of success. This is purely based off Seek, by the way. Mm. And there's a couple of ways that we do that. This Obviously, this episode isn't about um, hiring per se, but just to give you a, a t- couple of top liners, the way that you write the ads in terms of trialing different ads for the same role. So posting at least three ads for the same role, trialing different titles, playing around with how you can attract people to click. You've got to use the same principles as you would like digital marketing. You know, when you're writing a Google ad, what's going to make them click? If you have the same title, as everyone else, and there's 500 other jobs there, they're not going to sell click on your ad. So just applying similar principles that marketers and advertisers do can really help. And, and I think we've, we're still finding good results, still challenging, but we're still, we're still getting there and it's still helpful. Yeah. That's good to know. There is some good news and I guess, yeah, maybe if we go back a few years or, you know, maybe, yeah, just before this was the climate, it was, yeah, I, I, I know in our business, we were getting lots of applicants. It was quite easy. The ads, there wasn't a lot of effort put into ad writing, but more recently there, there has been because we realized that we have to stand stand out and, and appeal in a certain way, because there is a lot of the same roles presented exactly the same way. So it's really good to, I guess the, the tip you really 
and and the point you're getting at is is if yeah if you can split test a few different ways of writing your ad for your role then your your success rate's probably going to go up at least at least to a point of getting more applicants than the person that was only getting five compared to 150 previously that's uh that's pretty crazy isn't it I know it's wild. I think also you got to realize that ads become your IP, just like a Google ad does. If you have a Google ad that performs, that gold to your company because you know if you turn that tap on, it's going to produce mm-hmm. a result. Job ads are the same. Like if you know that this ad got this amazing person or this applicant, that then becomes your IP. You should keep that and reuse it later on. So it is a, it's an important thing to evolve. People just kind of throw ads up and they're just like, I just want someone, I'm going to throw an ad up. But you got to really kind of deliberately work backwards from what does your ideal person want? What are they looking for? How can you expand your candidate pool? You could offer work from home. You could offer a lot of different things. But there is one other thing, Tom, as well, is that a lot of people feel now they have to push a lot of money on candidates in order to get them to sign. But I would say out of all the candidates we place, and we do place good candidates, at least 80% of them are not the most expensive out of the candidate pool. And they're not necessarily looking for money. And we've, in fact, just in the last three weeks had Two candidates say no to a higher wage for our role because that company had other things that was more appealing to them. So you don't also have to fall into this game of throwing 20, 40% more than what they're actually worth at them just to get them to buy. Because then also I feel you're, you're attracting approachable staff technically, approachable, and then they're after money. And that's not necessarily what you always want either. And those extra things like just, I guess, from my, so from my research or my understanding of things at the moment, it's kind of that idea of you've got, you know, at the moment there's accounting big accounting firms where they're advertising or being more transparent with their wages. And that's either a good or a bad thing. But then you've got these ads or businesses that are like unlimited leave, you know, uh, 20 grand signing bonus. There's just like, it feels like they're just throwing, throwing everything at, um, in, in the, in the perks column, which is great, but they're kind of, one part of me thinks, is that, are we just, is everyone just getting a little bit is it just getting a bit too much and, and like, <laughs> what, yeah, like as in, does that really, is it just a race to throw as much benefits in, in your ad as, as possible? Yeah. And I think also you've got to realize that ads are a magnet of a specific type of person. So if you're pushing money and benefits, you're going to attract a very money and benefit oriented mm. person. It doesn't mean that you shouldn't highlight benefits, but I just think if you also highlight the challenges and you know, that how tough the role really is and, you know, what it's really like. You will find people that are like, I'm a bit bored. I'm looking for a challenge. I want something that's going to, you know, wet my appetite and keep me um, entertained. And so, you know, you're most likely to attract those types of people if you also include those types of things in your ad as well. Yeah. But yeah. It's just, it's not all totally bleak. It just, just takes a bit of work. You've got to be willing to put the work in to see what works and figure out what it is that your ideal candidate really wants. Yeah. Yeah. Perfect. Oh, that's great. I guess, Marnie, with you know, one part of our conversation is what we've been talking about is hiring. The other key thing, and it's it's also something you're fairly passionate about, is that retaining staff and, and making sure that they're, you know, the overachieving employees, if you like. But but manage, you know, it's it's one thing to recruit them, but it's another thing to, I guess, facilitate growth and also manage those types of of people. It'd be really interesting to. I guess from what you're seeing in the market now, what are some of the challenges that managers are, are having? And then probably we can get into the the archetypes as well. Sure. So I think really, because we, we, we've done a lot of, and another part of our business is team audits. So before we work with a client, we actually audit their whole team. And part of that is we ask them, um, what are the top, we actually give them a top 10 list of things and get them to rate their importance. 
So for example, we get them to rank, I'm just going to read it out to you right now because it's about engagement, right? So mm. we get them to rank, pay, work-life balance, a great culture, respect, pride in work, self-development, clear expectations, recognition and praise, career progression and autonomy. They rate out of 10 how important each of those things is to them. And interestingly, great pay ends up being about, um, it rates about four to five on the scale most of the time. What people rate is they rate career progression and they rate recognition and work-life balance. So when you have those factors, if you haven't surveyed your team and asked them how they are, some people are a bit scared to do that because they don't want them to you know, for that to be the catalyst of something else. But if you are worried about the engagement of your team or you're looking to increase the engagement of your team, I strongly suggest you do a team audit with them. Either get someone else externally to do it for you or sit down and have a good chat with them to figure out what it is they need and want because each staff member wants something different. Some people assume everyone wants money. Uh, that's actually not true. It's actually false. It's actually a false um, understanding of, of people. And so some people might want uh, more recognition or more achievement. Some people want a better title. Some people want more responsibility. Some people just want to be able to take a day off once a month or some people want flexibility with work hours. So it's really hard to paint everyone with the same brush. So when you're looking to increase, you know, your, your, your attention, you can't do that. And I really suggest you look at every person, um, differently and really figure out what they want. So that's the first thing that I would do is I'd audit them. The other thing is a lot of overachievers love a business that's going somewhere. They don't necessarily love a business that's currently perfect, but they love a business that fixes what is wrong, is willing to be wrong and, and to admit wrongdoings, and is willing to improve. So if you don't have that strategy, if you, don't, if you haven't defined what star you're hitching your wagon to, and you haven't laid the future out of where you and your team are going, how do you expect the staff member to have that future there? They're going to lay it for you, not necessarily. So... I do suggest laying out a future for your team as best as you can based on what you're facing in your company, what you want to achieve over the coming years, because that can really help as well. And then I guess the third piece would be, so the audit is the first part. The second part would be to lay a future out for them. Second part, sorry. And then the third part would be to really validate what is right about every single person and focus on that more than pointing out what's wrong. I find that we love to point out what's wrong. Management is pointing out what's wrong 90% of the time. But then, of course, it ends up that we can't help but point always out what's, you know, we always point out what's wrong because we're so used to doing that. So having things in place that really validate what, when things are done right, like little celebrations or team meetings or cupcakes, people who do good things or, you know, you can create on this in a, in a thousand different ways. But even something simple like accommodation letters, we have warning letters, but what is the equivalent and the opposite? For, for rewarding and someone doing something good. So you might look at me, for example, when I had the two warning letters, the only person in my company when I was um, 19 that had two warning letters. But um, if you had seen a list of commendation letters, I probably had more commendation letters than everyone. So you've got to kind of weigh up and look at someone, not only their bad sides, but their good side. So really things like that can really, um, really build that culture and that engagement and celebrating wins together because we want, to, we want to feel proud. People love their job. A lot of people do love their job and they want to feel good and they want to feel like they're contributing to something. So they would be my top three tips in terms of not only building a great culture, but, in, but uh, increasing that engagement. Yeah. I love what you said about obviously focus, uh, focusing on the, the positive of validating what's good about either people or their, their roles, because it, it's so easy to pick out the negatives or the, you know, the, the areas of improvement. And we always start with that, don't we? But, but really yeah. getting, yeah, always getting people to point out their own strengths, I guess, and, uh, or yeah. getting, helping them find their own strengths leads to 
what it would be a strengths-based culture where everyone's, you know, everyone's doing what they're good at. Sometimes for managers, I think they feel like they need to be good at everything. And, and sometimes that creates issues, which maybe fit into your, the different archetypes that, that we might lead into now. So with these, with these archetypes, I'm really interested in this because I think everyone has had lots of managers over their time. They can probably, probably kind of picture some good and bad ones. Marnie, what are these archetypes about that you've created? So an archetype is like a profile or an identity. And in management, we're faced with a lot of different challenges, different personalities, different situations, different problems, different clients. And you must be able to, this is my belief and observation of what a good manager is. You have to be able to adapt and use different archetypes and be agile enough to handle all the different hurdles that come at you with these different archetypes. You can't just use one way of being all the time. Like I've, I've dealt with managers that have found, unless you are really blunt with stuff and you're very forceful, nothing gets done. Right. So then, but then they're like that all the time. And so different people require different things, different situations require different things. So I've isolated seven different archetypes that are required for a manager. So the first archetype is the push-up. So this is, you need to be able to push as a manager. Some people don't like to admit that, but you have to. You have to really push staff to do their job. That's a manager's job to get staff to do theirs, right? So you've got to push them at the right time to get the right results. You then have the mentor. So that's required to enlighten staff, to develop them, and they build um, respect and trust. And then you hire the police officer. So that's required to ensure that this team stays within the flag, but they apply company policy and they stick to the rules. You then have the trainer archetype, which is necessary to upskill and develop the team. It also buys you more time and more freedom. Training actually is a currency of management and it allows you to buy more, more time and more freed up roles. The next archetype is the innovator. And this is really required to prevent stagnancy and to propel the company forward. You then have the organizer, which is needed to increase efficiencies and reduce waste. And then you have the firefighter, which is required to put fires out and deal with emergency situations. Now, how this kind of works is you have to balance this because you have things that pop up. And if you use the wrong archetype, not only will you uh, decrease your engagement with your team, but they'll get frustrated or you won't get the result you want. So for example, if you never push, if you're a soft manager and you never push, responsibility becomes nebulous, becomes hard to see, staff can get away with things, others end up doing their jobs. And then you end up with a bit of like a, a messy, unclear accountability. But if you firefight, for example, too much, which a lot of managers do, I have to say, most managers firefight way too much, which means they solve their staff's problems, they jump in and they fix it. If you do that too much, you end up doing all, you end up wearing all the hats of your staff, which means they don't learn how to solve their own problems. And it also means that they may consistently request for you to put the fire out for them. So it actually creates more fires. The more you wear the firefighter hat, the more fires that get created. If you never innovate, for example, staff feel as though they're in a company that's going nowhere, but if you innovate too much and you innovate constantly, which a lot of founders do, I have to say, founders love to innovate. But if you constantly, for example, bring in a new software every couple of years, you then destabilize what works. So there's actually too much balanced and not enough for each archetype. And they each have different manifestations and, and phenomena that it creates in the team. So then to really improve as a manager, you, you have to really understand each archetype, what that looks like, because it's not just actions. Archetypes are actually more viewpoints and ways of being. So if I'm talking to you, Tom, and you're my staff member and you just made a big mistake, I could either be a police officer and have a very stern, like, Tom, you knew this, this is company policy, it's actually not okay. If you do this again, you know, here's a warning letter. It's very tough and it's very harsh. 
if I'm more of a mentor and be like, all right, Tom, all right, you tell me, what could you have done better next time? So you've got to use, depending on the person situation, there's multiple factors, but you have to be good at uh, adjusting your um, attitude and your approach to match the archetype required for that situation. And I think you have to remove any ideas that you've gotten from other managers because I find you, you, tend to, uh, you tend to take on the identity that you've learned from. So if you've, seen a, a, if, if you've seen a boss or a manager who's been very, very tough and very stern and you start to adopt that identity and you're constantly pushing, you end up basically uh, pigeonholing yourself. And as a manager, we just have to be so uh, flexible and we have mm. to be able to, to, to jump around. And that's the biggest challenge with management is we have to be all these things. We have to do it brilliantly. We have to do it in a way that makes the stuff feel empowered and we can't really fuck it up. Yeah, that's, it's, it's really nice um, seeing all these because I, I think naturally, like just to talk myself for a second, I don't mean to talk about myself too much, but I reckon naturally I'd be, and, and I know from the past that I've messed this up where the innovation sort of won. So, you know, like let's, let's change things every two seconds because, you know, I think it's a good idea <laughs> what that's created in the background or within, within teams, within our business at times has been like, gee, like, are we really doing this again and probably creates a bit of carnage behind me. So I've those naturally... things never take you seriously. If you do, do that constantly, they're like, oh, another software, it's going to improve the company. Like it's, yeah. you're so right. They just go, they just eye roll basically. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And, and, and also from my background as in my experience, like the pusher, I'm not a pusher at all. I'm probably more an organizer or a mentor. And at that, at times, especially early in my career that I needed to be a a pusher in some ways and it was it meant slower slower exits for some people or slower reactions to things that were probably uh performance type issues that really needed to get solved faster so it's really interesting it's kind of reminds me of the seven thinking hats i don't know if you ever did that it's at right. school where each different color was a different viewpoint and i think the black hat was like the pessimistic the white was optimistic all that kind of <laughs> anyway i did it in, i remember doing it in prep or grade one or something back in the day, but, but this is really interesting. And for managers at the moment, because we've gone through that period of COVID or pandemic and now hard hiring and lots of benefits being presented to, uh, employees and people trying to retain as well. My question here is, do you think that at the moment managers are channeling one of these more than the others to maybe a detriment? Are we kind of becoming a bit more mentory because of the climate? Yeah, it's a good question. I would say that I think the mentor thing is definitely coming through. I think, interestingly, the two that aren't used ever, pretty much ever, the two that are the least used, I would say is the organizer uh, and the trainer. These are the two ones that don't get used enough. And I would say that because when we do the team audit, we also ask the candidates or the staff of our clients whether they feel the company is organized. 70% of the time, they'll say no, and that's a mm. problem for them. They like it when things are organized. So interestingly, if you, if you work on organizing and training your team, you can create the same effects that the mentor would have, but you don't need to always mentor them because also respect, it's kind of like in school, a lot of people hesitate to push, like you said before, right? We get hesitant. We don't, we want to be liked. We don't want to upset people. But in school, if you think about the teacher that you respected the most, it was probably the one that was with, you know, uh, Walt would pull you up and make sure that you did, you, they'd be like, Tom, 
come on now, come on, come on. And you'd be like, okay, but they did it in a way that was awful. And that's a push up, right? Mm. So I find that people, when they're trying to grab onto staff, they let go of the push up because they're like, I need you to mentor, I need you to mentor. And I tell you what, staff, just like you at school, respect being pushed if it's balanced at the right time and you have all these other archetypes in place. So I would never shy away from pushing. In fact, I'd be like, you know, guys, we've got such a, such a challenging thing right now. We're going to, these are the goals we're going to set for the next you know, quarter. Let's work really hard to get them and, and use all of the different archetypes because I wouldn't just drop one because it starts to create problems later. Because you can have the nicest, fluffiest team in the world. I did team audit once that had the best engagement rate out of every, every team audit I've ever done. But I dug and I dug and I dug. It's like something doesn't seem right. Turns out that the GM never pushed. Turns out that they were underperforming and that the owner couldn't afford to pay uh, couldn't afford to pay wages because it was so severely underperforming and yet they were the happiest team in the world. That's oh, a great okay. example of being, you know, mentor constantly without the other things that are required. Yep. Yeah. And the organizer one there, like that, what you were saying makes a lot of sense. I think with the organizer, whilst most of us as employees, sometimes we like to feel like we're in control, you know, we're in control and we're going with the flow. But if you organize someone's job and you design it correctly and all that, basically you're making it, making it a frictionless experience for the employee. And I guess for the, the manager here, that's, that should make that job a little bit more easier to then have perhaps more energy to do some of the training and the upskilling, because I guess at the moment, as well as people looking for employees or potential candidates looking for new roles, they're probably wanting to upskill for the future so that they're, you know, constantly developing. I reckon that would be a big, a big one for Gen Zs who are looking out in the market. They're like, I, I want to get paid. Yeah, sure. But I actually want to just upskill so that, you know, future proof, (laughs) future proofing my skills for, for 10 years time. Absolutely. I think also you've got to remember these are archetypes of their viewpoints. They're not actions necessarily. So the organizer is the viewpoint of going into an area and being like, how can I make this the most efficient and organized possible? Which Mm -hmm. also extends to letting staff organize as well and getting their ideas and getting them to come up with ways and actually pushing them to be like, all right, I want you to come up with a proposal of how we're going to reduce wastage in this area because I know that's taking us way too long. So I want you to come and give me, that's still the organizer. Uh, archetype because it's still a viewpoint. So it also just as a note, doesn't mean that you have to be the one doing it all, all the time. Mm. It's just a viewpoint that has to be maintained and, and swapped. And that's why, look, Tom, management is one of the hardest roles. Like I work with founders, management teams and, t- and their staff, right? And founders are hard. You've got a lot of responsibility to your business, you're the business owner. Like there's don't get me wrong. I know how hard that is. But with a manager, you're stuck in between what the founder wants and what your staff need. And You've got to abide by the law. You've got to keep staff happy, but you've got to get these targets. You've got to make sure to cut. Like it's, it's actually quite a juggling act. That that's why I wanted to lay these out for managers because it can become so like. But I was I thought that managers are there to push, so I just push them, and they're like, no, 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 no. It just helps you look at step back and go, hey, I, you know, I never more mental. That makes sense. I never, I never, you know, shared any other archetype or embodied any other archetype. So that's why I wanted to do this to help is the challenge that is, that is hiring. And I'm sorry. That is- mm, mm. And I guess within all of this and assuming that we can adopt the uh, managers are listening and they can adopt these, these types of viewpoints, really the outcome should be high performance, happiness for the team, uh, retention and, uh, and, and also, I guess, longevity in that, in that role is, is, would that be fair? Are there any other thoughts on that? Couldn't have said it better myself, man. Yeah. Yeah. Perfect. No, great. Awesome. And I, and I guess as well with those three things, just to sort of draw, 
bring it all together is there's that well-being piece as well if when things are feeling good frictionless but challenging but also enjoyable at the same time as a team member but also a team leader that's a great feeling and generally speaking that leads to um, higher levels of um, employee well-being as well which is something that obviously is a, you know it's a fairly big focus at the moment for some companies Absolutely. And I just think my only, my only lasting message on this would be don't, don't think that well-being doesn't mean challenging people and doesn't mean pushing them and saying, come on now, time, we've been through this. I want you to solve it now. I want you to go away. I want you to grab a cup of tea and I want you to bring me back your solution for this because I know you can do it. You're very, you know, you, that viewpoint of pushing and getting other people to do it, we can't coddle stuff. Because people actually get happiness out of achieving and overcoming barriers and overcoming challenges. So it's our job to lay out those challenges, let them know what those challenges are and help them overcome them, not solve it all for them. And that, that would be the only thing I would add because I find, you know, when you go down the wellness path, a lot of people go into the coddling area and I'm, I'm, not, a, I'm not a believer of that. So. Not a coddler. That's good. I'm not either. And I'm, I'm glad <laughs> we brought that out because, um, yeah, I feel like in the wellness or wellbeing space with so much of it sort of in you know, in everyone's face at the moment, we also, the, the goal of high well-being is to have high performance and, and that breeds happiness, I guess. So yeah, really great point to finish on, Marnie. Hey, thanks so much for your time and for sharing all of that with us. That was, that was awesome. Thanks, Tom. No problem. Anytime. Thanks for tuning in to another Well Workplaces podcast. If you've loved the show, it would be fantastic if you could leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Or feel free to follow us on LinkedIn or Instagram and search Well Workplaces or my profile, Tom Bosner. The show is produced by Alice Hoyle and is made in my backyard cubby. If you would like to hear more about our exclusive events and more about the Well Workplaces community, feel free to email me directly at tom at wellworkplaces.com.au where I'd love you to tell me who I should interview in the future podcasts and also tell me what you've loved most about the show. This podcast is really built on community input and built on the aspiration of inspiring healthy change in every workplace. Thanks for listening.